Should be live now. And I still see the video playing. Oh, and my microphone was also muted, so uh, ha ha ha. Uh, I had to refresh that screen multiple times before the live feeds finally started, so apologies for that. Um, you can see on the screen there, there's, uh, I'm going to be reading through uh, the second part of my three-part series, Trump the Warmonger versus the Foreign Policy Wonks of Peace. And uh, I think this is an important column to be reading through now. Because um, if you're watching the present political scene, you may have noticed over the past several days, yes, they're actually doing this. They're bringing back the Trump, Russia, Russia, Russia talking point. Yes, they are bringing it back. You're bringing it back without apology, and they're already attempting to practically gaslight everybody into thinking that that Trump, Russia, Russia, Russia collusion hoax has not actually been debunked. But somehow this Smirnov guy, this this Alexander Smirnov guy, being arrested by the FBI. Well, this totally proves that Trump was colluding with the Russians or something. And, um, it's an incoherent talking point. Um, the the fact that the Bidens were involved in shady shit in Ukraine is not based on any stories told by Alexander Smirnov to the FBI. Instead, all of the evidence on uh, uh, the Biden family's crimes in Ukraine and the bribes that they've been running through 20 separate LLCs. I should say more than 20 separate LLCs, all the, all the money laundering that went on. That is established on the basis of the Hunter Biden laptop, which Hunter Biden himself has already admitted in court filings is his laptop. So, we're in a very strange, uh, strange time right now. These people are being forced. See, we're forcing them to do this. I want you to understand that. We're forcing them to bring back the Russia collusion hook because they don't have anything else. Uh, we're forcing them to do this. And they're also, at the same time, they're bringing back the Rest of collusion hoax, they're claiming that Donald Trump is in the back pocket of Russian President Vladimir Putin, that Trump is a Russian asset, and they're bringing, yes, they're bringing this talking point back, and um, 
Yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. So I thought we I thought we'd go over this column because I saw this coming last October, you know, when I wrote this. You check the date on this column was published on my uh, my Substack, um, the rise of the new uh, of the new media newsletter, and this was published on October twenty seventh of last year. I could see this coming, right? They're getting ready to, to call Trump the same thing they were doing. And they, they don't have anything new. They keep retreading old talking points. And they, then they, they just try to furiously gaslight everybody into accepting it. And they don't understand how much the ground has shifted in the last. I mean, since uh, they tried this stuff in 2015 and 2016, the ground has just shifted so much in the last eight years. Uh, but what else can they do? And so I wanted people to understand we are now in a position of strength. They are the ones that are in the increasingly weaker position of having to bring back talking points that have already been thoroughly debunked. So without any further ado, here we go. Trump, the, the warmonger versus the foreign policy works of peace. It took Trump just one year to prove how the foreign policy establishment had been selling false narratives to the public about everything. But here we see a picture of, uh, I made this montage myself, a picture of uh, Donald J. Trump and um, the, the guy that the, they call the biggest foreign policy walk of peace of all time, the recently departed Henry Kissinger. Obama was very upset during the transition period. Did you know that? Yeah, he was. It should be remembered that all through the transition period from November 8, 2016, to January 20, 2017, the same people who loudly told the American public that electing Donald J. Trump as the 45th president of the United States of America would be a massive and unbelievable blunder found themselves scrambling to deal with the nightmare of an incoming Trump administration. Now, one of the people most Stridently voicing the idea that a serious mistake was unfolding was the man who was about to be forced to hand the newest presidential baton to Donald H. Trump. I'm talking about, of course, Barack H. Obama. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my Obama impression. Maybe you've never heard it. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, the American people have uh, made a serious mistake here. I'm uh, supposed to be handing this, making this handoff to Hillary. Uh, Trump, meanwhile, as you can see there, is doing a slow burn, having to listen to that pompous asshole. Obama spent the two and a half months of the transition period as the Trump team prepared to take power reminding the entire world that he, as an anointed member of the political class, having gone to all the right schools and surrounded by all the right foreign policy advisors, had been unable to make any headway at all on the growing threats of ISIS in the Middle East and of a nuclear North Korea in Asia. Now, if he, being so smart and sophisticated and nuanced in his approach to dealing with these foreign policy hot-button issues, had been unable to make any successful progress, what in the freaking world gave anyone the expectation that Trump, a total beginner and a neophyte with no foreign policy experience whatsoever could possibly succeed where Obama has failed. And I quote here from, uh, <laughs> I think this is from the Atlantic magazine. Uh, 
This is a screenshot from an article entitled An American Tragedy by uh, David Remnant. Um, and it's, I'm just, I have just the first two lines of this thing. You get the, that, that sense of what the article is, uh, is, is trying to tell the audience. The electorate has, in its plurality, decided to live in Trump's world. The election of Donald Trump to the presidency is nothing less than a tragedy for the American Republic, a tragedy for the Constitution, and a triumph for the... And I stopped right there. I couldn't stand reading any more of that. But, you know, it just gives you an idea of how the establishment was reacting to Trump's completely unexpected victory in that 2016 election. This was a blunder of, of epic proportions. The American people had just made the most tragic mistake possible. So does anyone recall that first year of the Trump administration in which the entire fake news media repeated endlessly the narratives of the foreign policy establishment that people needed to take cover and prepare for the absolute worst now that the adults were leaving the room. And this alpha male dumbass was going to be put in charge. Oh, I do. I, 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 uh, part of my job, you know, <laughs> this is my job. I had to read all the crap these people were writing back in 2017. Back down the hatches, folks, you know, take cover. The, this dumbass is about to be put in charge. It's going to be awful. Now, I know the major thing that gets endlessly rehashed was the claim that Donald Trump was a foreign agent of the Russian government due to the steel dossier and the sound and fury that was unleashed when General Michael Flynn, Trump's incoming national security advisor, with supposedly shown and illegally leaked transcripts violating the Logan Act. As a brief aside, um, I just want to mention this. General Michael Flynn wasn't violating anything and reaching out to the uh, Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. He was doing his job because the Obama administration on its way out the door was attempting to furiously sell the narrative that a Russian hacking group had stolen the DNC emails. And so, and, and this caused massive embarrassment for not just the Democratic Party and the DNC and Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and all those snakes. But this also, this just was an attack on uh, the American election. And so as a retaliation against what Russia, these Russian hackers had supposedly done, you know, on, on, the, on the behalf of the Putin government, it was claimed, the Obama administration retaliated by expelling about 30 Russian diplomats from the United States. And this, of course, um, was straining relations between the United States and Russia, this insistence that um, a Russian hacking group had, had stolen the DNC email. And so Michael Flynn and reaching out to Sergei Kislyak while he was in the Dominican Republic, um, making these phone calls, trying to calm the situation down and prevent the Russians from overreacting to this provocation because I think as it's become clear now, if you research this, um, the Russian hacking group actually did not steal the DNC emails at the behest of the Russian government. And uh, so Michael Flynn was trying to put that, that fire out. And they managed to take something like this, the guy just doing his job, and spin that into violating the Logan Act. Now, you have to recall the, uh, the atmosphere of things um, back in the transition period that we're discussing here. It was an immense shock to the system, the, the D.C. Beltway system, that, some, that Trump, by some arcane act of wizardry sorcery, somehow won that election, despite the fact that they rigged it for Hillary, Trump somehow won that election. And um, this was a massive shock to these people. And they're trying, they're trying to explain how this, how this could possibly have happened. And uh, it turns out that Hillary Clinton and all her people 
had already made excuse that they've been working on. And they, they tried to damage Trump with this allegation during the campaign. And they just segued into, into claiming that Trump won the election because the Russians helped him cheat. And so you have to remember the transition period, people looking for an explanation. How could this possibly happen? How could this alpha male dumbass beat one of ours, the grand dame of our foreign policy establishment, who was who was gliding towards her long awaited coronation? How could this possibly happen? Oh well, the Russians cheated. They they helped Trump cheat and steal the election from Hillary Clinton. Okay, and you had the uh, the steel dossier being published at BuzzFeed. I believe that happened on January 11, and then right after that, you had it sudden the the illegal leak to the Washington Post. David Ignatius of the of the Washington Post explaining, you know, that uh, that uh, somebody really needed to look into and into this and see whether that Flynn guy violated the Logan Act. Okay, and see if he violated the Logan Act. Talking to that Russian ambassador. And so we have to put this back in the context in which it happened. And so all these people running around looking for an explanation as to how Hillary could possibly lose that election. Ah, oh, here's the answer. The still dossier of Michael Flynn getting caught talking to that Russian ambassador. Oh, that explains it. The Russians stole the election for Donald Trump. Absolutely incoherent. And they're bringing it back. Why are they bringing it back now? They're going to try to convince you because um, I think many of them understand at this point that they cannot stop Trump. And Trump's talking, openly talking, about safeguards that have been put in place for this 2024 election. And they're trying to delegitimize, if he wins, and I believe he's going to, if he wins an election that takes place at some point in 2024, they're going to try to delegitimize his win by saying, oh, man, the Russians just stole it for him again. That's exactly what they're preparing to do. Okay, but we need to remember that uh, that narrative was only one of many that were being deployed against the new incoming Trump administration at that time. There were many, many others, such as the narrative that Trump, the impulsive braggart and bully, would not be able to help himself if he alienated and infuriated other world leaders with his nonstop boyish behavior. And I have that famous picture of Trump <clears throat> I believe this is the G8, and uh, you see the dearly departed uh, Prime Minister Abe of uh, Japan, and the useless John Bolton standing there, and uh, Angela Merkel of Germany's leaning over. You can't quite believe that Trump is doing what he's just done. He just said something, you know, he just revealed something. Notice they never really tell you the context of this picture. I, I think Trump just revealed something. And they and say, you know, his body language is very clear. Uh, you can't stop this. This is already a done deal. And, and I put the captain here. Oh, hey, look, everybody, there's Trump being a bullish asshole again. You know, and I think they they uh, they they tried to sell this idea. Trump, Trump, the alpha male blowhard who will not be able to engage these women leaders with the amount of sophistication and nuance that's required for international diplomatic relations. But one of the biggest narratives that was driven against Trump in the early days was that he would completely screw up the delicate situation that currently existed on the Korean Peninsula. Obama himself drove this narrative home by telling the press he'd warned Trump that soon after taking office, he would be forced to go to war with North Korea. The outgoing president had also, had also apparently told Trump that he himself had only narrowly averted going to war with North Korea while he was in office. And you look at, you see the, the black lines under the texture. I've provided links to back up everything I say in, these, uh, in, in this column. Um, so uh, don't just take my word for it that I'm spending a tell here. 
click on the links, go to the sources and see if they back up what I'm saying or not. So Obama had supposedly spent years trying all the different sophisticated and nuanced strategies suggested to him by his bevy of key and highly placed foreign policy advisors. And he got exactly nowhere with the Kim Jong-un regime in Pyongyang. Now, one of the key principles that Obama appeared to have based his North Korea policy upon was that he should give no face whatsoever to the leader of that country. If you propose a meeting, you set the time and place, and you refuse to meet with Kim personally. You order him and his representatives around like they're your dogs, and you put hoops in front of them, and you order them to jump through the hoops in order to prove to the watching world that uh, Kim and his uh, and his representatives are subserviently obedient to you. This was the main strategy pursued by American diplomats and successive U.S. presidential administrations since the Eisenhower era. Can you imagine any other countries where we try that? We try that? We try this thing? Yeah, okay. I'll have a talk with your representative. I'm not going to meet you personally. Have your guy meet my guy at this time and place. And that's those terms are unacceptable to you, then fuck you. Too bad. We won't, we won't negotiate. Okay. And this is, this is basically how American uh, foreign policy with North Korea was handled for about 60 years. So here I have a picture of uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, the captain reads, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter managed to fool the world into believing the North Koreans were keeping the agreed framework treaty for several years. Yeah. The green framework. <laughs> what a dumb man. It's, uh, it's also the chief reason there was no progress in talks with North Korea for around 60 years. Even the agreed framework agreement between President Bill Clinton, former President Jimmy Carter, and the North Korean regime turned out to be a colossal failure. When North Korea informed the world it had taken all the bribes offered to it as part of the deal, and then it kept right on developing its nuclear weapons program. Basically, the agreed framework that Bill Clinton came up with, we bribed the North Koreans to stop their weapons program. And they, they took all the bribes, they took all the, I think there was something like a, a some type of an industrial plant, and we just gave it to them. And they had it built for them. And they took all the stuff that we gave them and they just kept right on developing the nuclear weapons the whole time. And they waited until George W. Bush was in the White House to reveal this uh, back around 2003. So Obama and the usual suspects of the foreign policy establishment that makes the rounds and the fake news slathered on thick with the public. You have made a serious and grave error here by exchanging one of ours in Hillary Clinton for a complete outsider who won't have the first freaking clue what he's doing when it comes to dealing with genuine threats like North Korea. And that brings me to my next point. Hillary Clinton was supposed to continue Obama's awesome intelligence and nuance foreign policy. This was the script that they had so very carefully prepared. After eight years of Obama, the script called for eight years of Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's supposed to be in her eighth year as U.S. president right now. Did you know that? Well, yes. According to the script that was written by um, the foreign policy class, that's exactly what was supposed to happen. So after eight years of abject foreign policy failures the world over, Obama had been confident he was going to be able to hand the presidential baton off to his chosen successor, his former Secretary of State, 
Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, if you read part one of this series, and I'll link it here for you, you've had your memory refreshed to just how badly American foreign policy was conducted from 2009 to 2013 during Clinton's tenure as Obama's first Secretary of State. And I, I, I go through this exhaustively in part one of this three-part series. All the dumb shit these people did in uh, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, they even, uh, I didn't have time to get into it, and I say that in that column. I can't, I didn't even have the space to get into all the dumb shit they did in Central and South America and other parts of the world. I concentrated just on the Middle East. <laughs> and you look at all the dumb shit that they did. Uh, they unleashed a wave, you know, they, they, uh, a lot of, let me put it this way, a lot of bodies hit the floor in the Middle East between 2009 and 2013. And the, the direct result of the policies these people perceived. And yet, thanks to the ass-covering talents of both the fake news and the foreign policy establishment, by the summer of 2016, all the bad results in Libya, Egypt, Syria, and elsewhere had all been either forgotten or forgiven. Nothing that went wrong in the Middle East or with North Korea or anywhere else was really Obama or Clinton's fault, you see. They'd done the best they could do uh, following the best advice given to them by the best advisors. Here's a picture of uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, most, the picture most people see from that hearing is her saying, what difference at this point does it make? Well, I watched that entire hearing, and this is how she spent most of her time during that hearing. Glumly sitting there <laughs> like this, being forced to face her failures. So, Hillary Clinton in 2013 being forced to sit through a recounting of her disastrous Libya policies, which culminated in a Banazi fiasco during a congressional hearing, glumly wondering how all those crack foreign policy advisors managed to somehow steer her into disaster. <coughs> I'm getting over a cold right now, so... My voice isn't as strong as it usually is. So, with Kim Jong-un voicing ever more strident nuclear threats from Pyongyang, and with the ISIS terrorist group continuing to gallivant around the Middle East, seizing more territory and ludicrously holding it, the narrative was driven home. This was certainly not the time to rebuff the foreign policy acumen of someone like Hillary Clinton for that of a complete outsider like Donald Trump, whose one key foreign policy advisor was the supposed far-right extremist in General Michael Flynn, who Obama had fired as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency back in 2014. Obama had fired General Flynn for daring to call him out for his disastrous foreign policy in the Middle East. Then Obama had gone right back to spending two and a half more years doing that stupid shrudging act and pretending to be absolutely helpless when it came to stopping ISIS's wave of terror. And it worked. After Flynn was gone, the message had been driven home. Do not challenge Obama's foreign policy narrative for that region. Then, much to Obama's abject horror, his hand-picked successor, Hillary Clinton, who had been anointed by the global foreign policy establishment, managed to somehow, by some arcane act of wizardous sorcery, lose the 2016 presidential election in Donald J. Trump. Trump rejects Obama's advice about Michael Flynn. On top of letting everybody know he warned Trump he'd soon be leaving the country into war with North Korea, Obama also very helpfully revealed to the news media that he'd strongly advised Trump to toss General Flynn ass first off his transition team. 
Obama told Trump that Flynn would give him incredibly bad advice. So it would be a very wise thing for Trump to ditch Flynn before moving into the White House. Unfortunately, uh, Trump didn't listen to Obama and was probably upset that game, motherfucker. Now here we see a picture of what it looks like when your worst nightmare comes to. Now, not to worry, though, because Obama and his, tra- his brain trust convened a meeting on January 4, 2017, inside the White House to discuss exactly how they were going to handle the incoming Trump administration and the direct threat they were facing because General Flynn was tapped to be the new national security advisor. I did a rather long slide about that nefarious January 4, 2017 meeting and the bitter fruit it produced on Axelwild back, and you can read that thread right here. And I, I include both the original uh, thread on X and the thread reader version of it. I include both links there. So the foreign policy establishment made no secret that it was ferociously rooting against Donald Trump during his first year in office. The massive embarrassment of the voting public rejecting the grand dame of the foreign policy establishment to put Donald J. Trump in the White House instead was a slight at and a direct challenge to that establishment that could not go unanswered. And answered it was. I can list literally hundreds of fake news headlines that were run both in print and TV during the first year of Trump presidency, which all had the same narrative thing. By God, we are in trouble now because by some twist of fate, this complete idiot is now in charge and he's literally making the wrong moves on everything. For instance, Trump in Saudi Arabia. Trump's first foreign trip as the newly inaugurated president provided the fake news media with a chance to engage in an enthusiastic orgy of negative press coverage. Especially concerning to all the TV talking heads was the massive arms deal that the Trump administration was finalizing with Saudi Arabia and the five other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC for short. And he finalized the details of that with this first key foreign trip. Trump was viciously and incessantly lampooned and mocked during this trip by a fake news media that utterly failed to grasp what it was observing. And here we see a picture of the sword dance that will go down in history once the truth about it is fully revealed. Of course, the foreign policy establishment, who I've affectionately dubbed the forever warns machine, also was not being honest about the real reasons they were stridently and loudly objecting to Trump's Saudi Arabia arms deal or his other moves in the region. Trump was extensively mocked in the fake news media for this moment, the dedication ceremony for the Global Center on Combating Extremist Ideology, which you could also call the Global Center for Combating the CIA and every other motherfucker out there creating terrorist groups and trying to destabilize our region. And, and, and do all this money laundering and cause all these conflicts in our region, but that's too long. So yeah, let's just call it the Global Center for Combating Extremist Ideology. Here's, okay, here's one way they lampoon this. They see Star Man uh, turned it into the, a palantir from uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, books and film. So that's one example how Trump was mocked for doing it. And people just didn't literally, literally did not understand what they were watching. The intelligence agencies that create groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and who support Nazis in Ukraine and basically have lost over 70 coups worldwide uh, 
Um, they've had free reign in the, in the Middle East for a long time now, and uh, the reason they don't like what you're seeing here, the reason they don't like this picture, and they don't like that sword dance, and they don't like that arms deal that uh, Donald Trump did with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council. The reason they don't like these things is, uh, or we'll be going over this in a minute, is, is because it means they are going to have to come up with another region of the world to do all their money laundering in. Since the door got slammed shut in their face. Starting with that. <coughs> so, while plenty of very profitable arms dealing went on in the area for decades to that point, no Western power had dared to sell the GCC advanced up-to-date weaponry, and especially not this much up-to-date high-tech weaponry all at once. What has been going on is that Western governments led by the war profiteering industry have been making handsome profits selling outdated and obsolete weapon platforms to the region, but only enough so that the region could never stabilize and guarantee its own security. Here we see a, um, a graph of the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, and I put a rather instructive caption under that picture. Thanks for all the help over the last hundred years or so, you imperialist warmongers, but we'll take it from here. Go home. And so foreign intervention and domination of the region was an unquestioned reality. The U.S. and the Brits and the French and all these other Western powers just had to be there um, and put military bases in place and maintain a growing presence and make defense contact with a shit ton of money. Because the nations in that area simply could not get it done on their own. So during the Cold War, this foreign domination of the region was sold as an absolute necessity because the, of the USSR. The Soviets were there wanting and donning and creating influence over vassal states like Iran. So we were going to have to be in the region also creating and developing our own vassal states like Iraq and Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. But the USSR shuffled off this mortal coil in 1989. While Russia was retrenching and retooling itself in 1990 and 2001, another compelling reason for the US and growing foreign military excursions into the region was just going to have to be provided. Hence, the rise of Islamic terrorism is the key reason for staying in the Middle East but be continually expanding our presence there. When you research into who formed Al-Qaeda and who armed and directed it in its early days before supposedly losing control of it, you discover the CIA and other foreign intelligence agencies were responsible. <coughs> it continued to be a huge joke how also very careful people were not to describe Charlie Wilson as a big CIA asset, which is exactly what he was. This is the cutout method where you use a flamboyant frontman to hide all the clowns in America activity going on behind him. Think back to how much war profiteering was enabled following that 9-11 attack. With such a small investment, several hundred million dollars throughout the 1980s and 1990s in creating Al-Qaeda and uh, having it attack certain targets. How much of a return did the forever war machine gain for itself from 2001 to 2020? Conservative estimates placed the U.S. spending on the war on terror at just north of $2 trillion. Now, how much of that went right into pockets of the foreign policy establishment if their think tanks and policy centers just donations from their partners in the arms development sales industry? They don't call it the, I, don't, I don't call it the military intelligence complex for nothing. Here we see a picture of America's forever war. Now, 
Time for another drink of water. <laughs> Trump was the very first Western to tell the Saudis and the GCC member states. I know what's been going on. I, I am going to put a stop to it. And then he followed through and proved to them that he meant it. The first two things that Trump did that sent the forever war machine, foreign policy establishment, into an absolute rage was announced the massive arms deal. How many February through June was preparation. Preparation for ripping the guts out of righteous. It actually took him about five months to do it. As all the usual suspects took to the airwaves and print magazines to loudly warned this was a massive mistake, Trump updated the key military forces in the region, especially their quick strike commander units. Into the 21st century with that arms deal. As was feared in certain quarters, this updating of the military of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, and Kuwait, no man, had enormous immediate consequences. The first consequence was the utter defeat and decimation of the ISIS terrorist group, something that was, and you need to understand this something that was never supposed to happen. Trump and ISIS. One of the biggest things the foreign policy establishment will never forgive Trump for was the ease with which he led the U.S. military in assisting the Gulf Cooperation Council commando forces and utterly wiping out ISIS in just a few months back in 2017. I'll never forgive the guy for that. After more than four years of Obama's helpless act, a helpless act that Hillary Clinton was supposed to continue, the sudden destruction of ISIS under Trump was a market contrast that could not be ignored. ISIS was supposed to be a generational threat. It was supposed to continue expanding its reach and its bloody influence. After all, people who carefully created and enabled Al-Qaeda had also carefully created and enabled ISIS. And they were expecting at least a very profitable decade or two in return for their investment. Well, imagine the increases in uh, U.S. military presidents in the Middle East that would be necessary to contain the ISIS threat alongside that of Iran. So Obama had already managed to get U.S. combat troops on the ground in Syria back in 2014. Supposedly to combat ISIS along with teaching the Bashir Assad regime a lesson for using chemical weapons on its own people. That was a nice start, and the forever war machine was truly looking forward to expanding the U.S. military role in Syria under the mistress of disaster Hillary Clinton as well as the more as more deeply embedding the US military presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then Trump just had to go and ruin everything for these people by totally exposing Obama's helpless act for what it was. An act. After watching the speed at which U.S. forces under the command of Donald Trump destroyed ISIS while working in support of GCC commando units, the question of just how hard Obama has really been trying could not be avoided. Investors Business Study published this editorial of the week that Rackler fell. Nine months after President Trump promised to defeat ISIS quickly and effectively, U.S.-backed forces captured Raqqa, which until Tuesday had served as the ISIS capital. The battle was now over. Who deserves credit, Trump or President Obama?
Trump, not surprisingly, claimed it for himself. It had to do with the people I put in, and it had to do with the rules of engagement, Trump said in the radio interview. Before dismissing this as typical Trump self-aggrandizement, the city that for several years Obama insisted that a quick and decisive victory against ISIS was all but impossible. After belittling ISIS as a JV team, and then being surprised by its advances, Obama finally got around to announcing a strategy to degrade and ultimately destroy the militant Islamic group. As the strategy dragged on, seemed to go nowhere, Obama kept telling the country that this was just the nature of the beast. Contrast this with Trump. Rather than talk endlessly about how long and hard the fight would be, Trump said during his campaign that, if elected, he would convene his top generals and give them a simple instruction. They will have 30 days to submit to the Oval Office a plan for soundly and quickly defeating ISIS. The result of this shift seemed pretty obvious. In July, ISIS was booted from Mosul, and this week, Raqqa was liberated. For all intents and purposes, ISIS has been defeated. Trump did in nine months what Obama couldn't in the previous three years. Trump's critics will insist that victory was inevitable, given that Obama had severely degraded ISIS over the previous years, and that all Trump did was continue Obama's strategy. <laughs> what laughable bullshit. But the bottom line is that while Obama preached patience, Trump promised a swift end to ISIS and then delivered it. So, before we get into the next point, which is probably going to shock some of you, I just want to write rate. The point that just about everybody overlooks. Every nation in that region of the Middle East where ISIS was operating has a fully functioning Air Force. ISIS, did, did you know this? ISIS had no Air Force. It's true. They didn't have an Air Force. ISIS was a bunch of Black-clad assholes. Okay, I'm getting a message. Uh, uh, I'm getting a delivery outside. I let, I let them know I'm, I'm doing a stream right now. I just with a bunch of black-clad assholes gallivanting up and down the highways and byways of uh, Syria and Iraq. If they if they built the caliphate and um, convoys made up of cars and trucks and Humvees, and for some period of about four years, Obama and the foreign policy establishment and the intelligence agencies that run the foreign policy establishment were able to get the international public, it's not just America, it's the international public, they were able to get everybody to buy into the idea that ISIS was just unstoppable. These guys gallivanting up and down the highways in these slow-moving armored convoys. Who would have made such attractive targets from the air? No, nobody could bomb them from the air. It was it was impossible. And so, for a period of some four years, um, people watched ISIS grow and grow and grow as a threat, a very serious and legitimate threat. And Obama, the whole time, was there to help with that. And Hillary Clinton is supposed to continue there to help help with that. And, 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 and so uh, the idea was firmly planted in everybody's mind. These assholes going up and down the highways and these are on these convoys. Wow, nobody can stop them. It's, 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 it's a real puzzle. It's a mystery. And then uh, Donald Trump, by some Arcane act of wizardry sorcery that still isn't really explained somehow become president of the United States and they start bombing the fuck out of these guys from the air. And uh, what people don't remember is 
ISIS gallivanting up and down the highways and byways pretty much ended the first month of the campaign. And those fuckers got bombed from the air. All their convoys who could no longer move on the roads anymore. They were they they had the fuck bombed out of them. And the last four months of the campaign was spent rooting these assholes out of their dug-in defenses in Mosul and Rakhla, where they had 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 several years to establish kill zones and defensive the defensive barriers. Okay, and that's what the last four months was. But from the moment Trump became president, all of a sudden the amazing air shield that these assholes seemed to have, like it's like it instantly evaporated. And I don't think this is discussed enough. I really don't. How ISIS had some sort of magic air shield around them. While Obama was in there from 2009 to 2016, ISIS had a magic air shield. Really amazing. And then all of a sudden, by some... By some strange arcane act of, of, of wizardry sorcery, when Trump's put in charge, all of a sudden ISIS loses this magical airship. And they start getting their shit bombed out of themselves, and all their convoys are destroyed, and they're pinned down, they have to, have to hunt a hole, they're down there in their buckets, and then for the last four months, every time they stick their head up out of their hole, they get their head blown out. What an amazing contrast, huh? So, let's explain this point that a lot of of people also don't understand. You know, um, they didn't understand why ISIS was able to move around without being bombed from the air for a number of years. There's something else they don't understand. Before the objection is raised as to how the GCC commando units the U.S. military was fighting in support of in this nine-month fight against ISIS, was able to use the newly acquired advanced weapon weaponry Trump gave them. This must be remembered. See, like Trump does the the arms deal really early in his, uh, his administration. And it's like all these GCC commandos. Wow, they seem to instantly know how to use these new advanced high tech weapons platforms. How'd they pull that off? Well, ah, ah, well. Many of these same GCC commando units were engaged in joint exercises with top U.S. military units in the American Southwest back in 2015 during what popularly became known as Operation J-Helm. GCC commando forces had had months of training and working in joint operations with U.S. troops while using the advanced weapons platforms long before the campaign to destroy ISIS kicked off in earnest in the spring of 2017. You remember the black helicopter, everybody. Everybody's freaking out. Oh, my God. What are these black helicopters all about? What's going on here? That's another reason. I I, I think Obama didn't have the first fucking clue what was that thing going on. He didn't have the first clue. He wasn't told about any of this. Uh, my good friend Thomas Winter was patiently explaining this on Twitter back in 2018, 2019, to people insisting the U.S. military under Obama's direction was about to invade and lock down the American Southwest and seize all the guns. The in, in, in a way, to get things done, you have to have a cover story. You have to have something that, I mean, did not want this coming out back then. Oh, yeah, we have GCC commandos practicing <coughs> very intricate, c- complicated military operations using new tech that is, what weapons technique, um, that's the best way to say this. So practicing with our guys. Dropping from helicopters into deep underground bunkers, and they're doing this in the American Southwest. They can familiarize themselves with the weapons platforms we're going to be selling to them soon. Okay, he's explaining this. Okay, what do what? Okay, but thing the thing is, back in 2015, 
you could not have anybody exposing this because it was it was important that this be allowed to happen without any interference. I guarantee you, Obama didn't really fucking know what was going on here. So I have the captain here of Axe Jones and remember, uh, the black helicopters and Jade Helm was a, was a popular subject on InfoWars at that time. And Axe Jones is here explaining, Obama's suing the military for all our guns. The black helicopters prove it. No. <laughs> yeah, it was... Hey, thank you, Alex Jones, for your service. That was a very good cover story. And, you know, it was very necessary at the time to keep certain people from figuring out what was really going on. So Trump quickly and decisively removing the generational threat of ISIS in just nine months caused immense problems for the war properties of the world. How can they keep destabilizing the Middle East if Trump destroys their pet terrorist groups in such short order? How are they going to make their money? Not to mention arming the armies of the region with advanced weaponry, which guarantees their own security, thereby robbing the forever war machine of an excuse to keep expanding their foreign military presence in the area. See, with the fact that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and all these other countries in the region now have advanced commando units with top-of-the-line weaponry, how are you going to get anywhere creating a new ISIS? Just to launch terror attacks and draw the U.S. back into a conflict. How, how, how are you going to do that? You might have to look at other places around the world, like say, oh, I don't know, Ukraine. You know, to do your money laundering now that you've had your ass pretty much kicked out of the Middle East. And your pet terrorist group got blown to shit. So the last thing the Forever Wars machine wanted to see was an outbreak of permanent stability in that region of the world with fully equipped military quite capable of dealing with their own problems which often turn out to be problems being summoned into existence by foreign intelligence agencies with nefarious agendas. While Trump was in the process of defanging ISIS, he was also engaged in solving another Gordian knot problem that Obama and all his crack foreign policy advisors had been assuring the public was impossible. And that is getting Kim Jong-un calmed down. Yes, we're up to Trump and North Korea. <clears throat> so the very first thing Trump did in dealing with North Korea, with the North Korea issue, and Kim Jong-un, was set the globalist foreign policy establishment into red-faced connections. I butchered that. I'm going to read that again. The very first thing Trump did in dealing with the North Korea issue and Kim Jong-un stopped the globalist foreign policy establishment into red-faced conniptions. He ditched the 60-years-long policy of treating the North Korean leader like his dog, like a pariah, by actually engaging Kim personally and offering to meet with him in person. It, it was starting to contemplate this. No other U.S. president had personally reached out and offered to talk directly to Kim Jong-un on the phone and certainly not in person. Trump offered to do both right off the bat on being sworn in. Now, of course, there was a brief period of the usual tough talk between Trump and Kim as they establish their respect for one another. You know, uh, my button works, you may, you may remember that. But they had to establish that, that respect. They had to joust each other a little bit before Trump made the kind of offer to meet and discuss the important issues with Kim that was never supposed to be done. The entire time Trump was talking with Kim on the phone and setting up a face-to-face -face meeting with the Korean leader in Singapore, 
then Vietnam, and then in North Korea itself, the entire foreign policy establishment was shrieking for him to stop. That this was exactly the wrong way to calm down the situation. It was almost as if 60 years of non-engagement with North Korean leaders controlled by the foreign policy establishment have been deliberately crafted to fail. Almost. <clears throat> Saving face. <clears throat> Trump was the first who offered to negotiate with Kim in a manner that allowed Kim to have faith, to save faith. Faith is an Asian reality that is radically misunderstood. It's a radically misunderstood concept in the West, but it's widely important to understand it, to get anywhere with an Asian person. You cannot approach that person as if he is your dog, giving him, take it or leave it, or such as, I'm willing to meet with your representative here at this location and at this time. This is non-negotiable, take it or leave it. This is not approaching the Asian person as an equal. I'm your master, you're my slave. Jump through this poop for me, and then we'll negotiate. And every single time, the Asian person is going to tell you. So that's this is not approaching the Asian person as an equal, allowing them to save face. For all its vaunted foreign culture acumen, the foreign policy establishment making it the foundation stone for any dealing with North Korea's leaders that they were only to be approached in a manner that gave them no face whatsoever that they be treated as inferiors to Western negotiators seems clearly designed to ensure no real results were ever achieved. So the first person to break the star mate was President Trump, who rejected all the sage advice being offered to him uh, by the usual foreign policy experts who shouted he was making a major mistake by offering to talk to Kim personally. And so you remember this. Oh my God. Oh my, you can't do that. You can't talk to him personally. You, you, you're giving him credibility. You can't do that. So here's Trump meeting with Kim Jong un in Singapore in 2018. And here's Trump meeting uh, Kim in person in Vietnam. And then here's Trump meeting with Kim Jong un at the demarcation line before historically stepping into North Korea. Trump had engaged Kim in real dialogue and making real concessions. It's painful at this point to contemplate where U.S.-North Korea relations would be right now if the entire foreign policy intelligence agency fake news establishment hadn't conspired to steal the 2020 election from Trump and drive him from office so Joe Biden could take over. Of course, the minute he was sworn in following that Friday 2020 election, one of the first things Biden did was go right back to the same kind of no-face policy towards North Korea that hadn't achieved any real gains in the 60 years prior to Donald Trump. And the foreign policy establishment bubbled and cooed about how awesome it is that that mean Trump fellow was gone now and can't muck up anything further for them. And that nice and decent and demented Joe Biden will do anything they advise him to do. As you look around the world today and contrast the current state of things with the day Donald Trump climbed aboard that helicopter to leave the White House and uh, excuse me, 2021. That's a typo there, 2017. That should read 2021. Ask yourself how Biden listening to these forever war machine advisors is working out for the rest of us. Yeah. It's obvious. If you look around the world today, all the hot spots there, Biden is everything they claim Donald Trump would do, Joe Biden has done. So coming in part three, which I hope to be reading tomorrow, the best disguise the Forever Wars machine ever came up with 
was using propaganda to sell themselves as the policy walks of peace. That's exactly what they've done. This is this is exactly one of the biggest things we can be grateful to Donald J. Trump for is that he had <coughs> he had completely exposed the foreign policy establishment for what it really is. They are not the policy wants to peace. They are the propaganda arm of the forever wars machine. That's what they have always done. And Trump completely exposed them, and that's why they're again getting increasingly desperate to keep him from having this return to the White House, because nobody understands more than they do all the the conflicts that they've started that they're going to be ended. All the money laundering they're doing is going to be stopped. All all the future military conflicts they hope to start are going to be placed in direct jeopardy if that fucking guy gets back in the White House. So that's point three coming tomorrow. I've gone now for, that was a really long column. These columns are a lot longer than my usual. An hour and six minutes. So thanks to everybody that hung, that hung around to watch this entire thing. And we'll do it again tomorrow. So this is Brian Kate signing off. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.